Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 46 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 18th of December. And what's on the menu for this week? Well, Gary, we've got a fascinating interview with John Connor. He's the CEO of the Climate Institute, and he's going to be talking to us all about Paris and uh, what the implications of the Paris Agreement are for Australia and uh, the world. So that's going to be fascinating. It will indeed. And after that, we've got a great interview with BT economist Chris Caton, and he's going to be talking to us all about the Fed increasing its interest rate, which they did this morning. They did indeed, a quarter of 1%, and with more gradual increases to come. That's right. So anyway, uh, let's first of all have a chat with John Connor. 169 countries are signatory to this agreement. It's important. And so first off, we asked John how he saw what they'd achieved. It's a strong agreement. Uh, This is a historic one where we have for the first time all countries having uh, to make commitments uh, and have those reviewed over a number of decades. Uh, Previously, we had countries making commitments, but but they'd be over a handful of years and then we'd have to renegotiate and rewrite the whole thing. But there's a fundamental issue of... uh, what legally binding and what isn't and uh, a lot of it isn't legally binding so what's it worth? No, look, I think that's actually a bit of a red herring, frankly, and um, uh, we've had legally binding agreements like uh, the Kyoto Protocol, and countries like Canada have walked away uh, without any any effective uh, punishment. And in fact, alongside Kyoto, countries who haven't made those legally binding commitments, the US and China and others, actually doing more than what they said they were doing. And so that can be a red herring, particularly when what you look at the process that's been agreed here. There's quite a remarkable process of regular reviews and stock takes. The the first of which is which is in three just three years' time, where countries have to um, come together and be uh, compared and looked at by other countries, but also importantly by their own citizens. Uh, so um, again, this is not perfect, but uh, I think that provides a robust process, which is probably more realpolitik. The the reality is international agreements don't cut pollution. Um, it's an interconnection between domestic policies and technological innovation, and so we need to make all of those things sing. Under uh, Malcolm Turnbull the Australian government is reversing some of the opposition to renewables. How do you see the Australian scene? Are we making progress? Well, look, we've um, we've now got to come down to some real hard work here in Australia. Um, we welcome the fact that uh, Australia was mostly constructive in the talks at Paris, uh, and in particular at the very end, joining onto what's called the High Ambition Coalition, uh, backing warming goals of uh, well below two degrees and indeed uh, one and a half degrees, pursuing one and a half degrees where possible. Their big problem uh, is that there's a vast gulf between the high ambition coalition and the low ambition policies that we have. Uh, And so somehow they either maintain their international credibility or they uh, maintain the policies that they have, which are actually more aligned to three to four degree warming. Uh, And so there's a big, big problem there that they can't talk their way around. There's a fundamental issue here is that some of the backbenchers are very nervous about uh, uh, freeing up uh, emissions or tightening up emissions guidelines. Yeah, look, there's no question. There's a, a real politic here at home, of course, and um, and so this is a challenging one. But I think there are a number of things that, that are important. Uh, let me first dismiss them. I mean, a number, a couple of those backbenchers have been out the last couple of days, raising some of the concerns that you raised about voluntariness and saying this is meaningless. But you know, uh, I think you know, uh, for reasons I've explained, why that's not the case. But if those guys, if there was a smidgen more um, of a punitive arrangement in there, then they'd be screaming uh, UN World Government, as we've seen Morris Newman and 
others talk about. And so there's those sorts of factors that you need to deal with. But what is really important to understand, um, uh, firstly, in Paris itself, was the first time there was no active business lobby working against the agreement. Uh, I've been in Copenhagen, I was in Bali and a range of other ones. You see active uh, business lobbying against that, but it was extraordinary that there were business uh, sector there uh, calling for action and calling for some some, uh, activity there. And some of those are actually explicitly talking about zero emissions by 2050. But also back here in Australia, um, where the Climate Institute have worked with groups like the Business Council, the Australian Industry Group, uh, investor groups, uh, in having very clearly that they too recognise this is about net zero emissions or below, uh, and recognising alongside companies that we've facilitated as well, BHP, Wes Farmers, Westpac, uh, that um, two degrees or more is going to have big economic impacts and costs and costs for consumers. And so I think um, it's important. Uh, there is some political problems there, but um, we've never had, I think, some of the common purpose around at least the end goal of net zero emissions and the economic costs that we need to be avoiding in two degrees warming. So uh, I think there's much to work with there. Obviously, this will affect all industries from uh, construction to uh, transport. There's been a lot of talk about what's going to be happening with the Australian coal industry. Uh, That seems to be heading into, uh, well, there's going to be a whole lot of stranded assets there. I mean, how do you see that panning out? Yeah, look, very interesting. I mean, I think the, the first thing to say, of course, is <clears throat> it is um, they're actually relatively um, isolated, not the high growth sectors of the economy, which certainly have some big challenges. And so um, uh, all economic studies show that we can cut pollution and to zero, uh, including a, a number to zero, and still have significant growth. The ANU and um, uh, Climate Works, the most recent of that, and still see 150% growth in the economy through to 2050 and have a, a prosperous zero carbon economy then. Obviously, there are some key ones. Um, Energy and transport and agriculture are the big uh, chunks that we need to deal with. Um, and there's um, one of the exciting things is the cost of alternatives have uh, plummeted so much. I think that's one of the reasons why the the dynamics and atmosphere around this are so much more different than uh, six years ago in Copenhagen. But there is a big elephant in the room, and it's a big belching elephant called um, a bunch of brown coal fire power stations and some of our old uh, black coal fire power stations, which are going to linger on for decades in our electricity system. System and going to block any innovation at scale um, that um, we need to make, certainly if we're going to meet some of these emission reduction targets uh, that matter within our carbon budget. So we do have some real problems and uh, the priority one that we're calling out is um, tackling um, this overhang of old old coal-fired power plants, some of them with hardware from the 1950s, literally. Um, we've got to have some policies to, to phase them out because we're not um, under either major political party going to have a carbon price uh, that's going to drive that change in the next decade or so. Oh, the issue, though, is that uh, you've got Malcolm Turnbull who's defended the coal industry. Anna Palachuk the other day she said the coal industry was uh, fundamental to Queensland's economy. I mean, what likelihood do you see of uh, politicians uh, going along with your demand? Um, well, I think it's, it's, it's how you define the coal industry is important, I guess. It's the coal export industry and the markets itself is actually sort of um, beginning to really shake that down. I've seen the the, uh, the seaborne market crash and, um, and companies' uh, valuations plummet uh, dramatically and scaling back 
from Glencore to Peabody to all those pure play assets and seeing BHP and Rio um, exiting, they're, they're smart enough not to want to get caught with this. They've been shunt, shunting off their coal um, in various uh, assets in various ways. Their thermal coal in particular, uh, coke and coal, which helps make steel and things like that, are, uh, are, are probably more durable for the while, while we need more technological alternatives come forward. So we're certainly seeing that, and some politicians there obviously are going to um, mouth some of those things, but we've actually got both in Palaszczuk and Turnbull, uh, leaders who are also looking at the options and talking up innovation and, and renewables and the like. So, um, but both of those um, are in more tricky areas uh, when it comes to the electricity sector where they um, uh, across the political spectrum has to has to come to grips with these things. John, there's a very serious sort of deadline coming up at 2020, which isn't all that far away. Do you think there can be an increase? Can they reach the targets or is it going to stretch out a bit? Well, I mean, it's. Um, I think it's, it depends a lot on, on what's going on with the politics and what's also going on with um, community movement, but also uh, what's going on at the big end of town, big capital. And I think that's where uh, we're seeing some uh, uh, very interesting dynamics. Um, uh, the process is certainly one where countries now, because what the targets that countries put forward uh, don't add up to that sort of high ambition. They add up to about uh, three degrees warming, um, and Australia is certainly in that camp. So all countries are going to need to lift that. As a point of process, there are opportunities for that beginning next year um, as they consider and move to either ratify or formalise their support for this Paris Agreement. Uh, there is, um, I mean, the government itself has said um, uh, in 2017 it will do that. I think it should do this uh, the sooner the better. But in 2017, they've got their policy review process. And 2018, what was agreed in Paris, is there's a global stock take where people, where countries will come together and go, well, how are we travelling with this before that formal agreement starts in 2020? And then from 2023, we will... We, um, uh, have um, uh, five yearly uh, reviews. So look, there are opportunities there for that. Where this is why the agreement's not perfect. The um, uh, those initial targets can, for those who've made them, can be all they do up until they've said they would do them in either 2025 or in our case and others 2030. But we think what we're establishing here is an international norm of action that uh, rests with the players that are out there at a nation state level, but also um, at capital. Uh, and in that one, I'll just just add that. Um, we're seeing very significant moves amongst investors, many of whom are exposed to the costs uh, that I was talking about earlier and recognising that. But we're also seeing financial regulators moving, um, being aware of that risk. And um, we saw G20's Financial Stability Board talk about, uh, well, actually set up a task force to increase and improve carbon disclosure because they're worried not only about the impact of climate risks, but they're worried about the costs of the, the the stranded assets in transitions that are that are underway. So um, uh, there's a number of dynamics now all of a sudden uh, which are working together. One final question. Uh, it's been said that what we really need is a global carbon price. What do you feel about that? Well, some say that, and I think, frankly, that, that's a, that, that can be a bit clever by half because it's going to be a long while before we get a global carbon price, a truly integrated global market. But uh, we are seeing uh, the reality will be we'll see that emerge like a patchwork a quilt, if you like. Um, and uh, there's growing number of countries doing that. China, of course, moving national in 2017. Uh, very important, I think, in the longer term that we get that, uh, both the price and the limit in, uh, on pollution and see those integrated, and that can be the most cost-effective. But um, we are heading for zero emissions and now um, people are working and gearing their business models, their economic projections and their and their, their forecasts towards how quickly we can get to um, an economic model that works in under zero emissions. And so that's what people need to be uh, working towards and that's um, where we're certainly focused. John Connor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.
Well, I thought that was pretty good, Leon. I thought so too. I think he's he's actually quite positive about it. There's still sort of lots of reservations about it and uh, whether it's actually going to work. But I think on the other hand, it's probably very significant that they got close to 200 nations agreeing to something like this. Yeah, that's right. And depending, you know, it's still still in doubt for, for certain uh, countries. But at least it's a step forward. We've got some agreement. That's right. And there's a lot of work to do. But as you say, it's a step forward. Now, let's have a chat with BT economist Chris Caton. I wanted to talk to you about the Fed. Okay. And it will, of course, be the first increase in rates in the United States since 2006. So this is something we're not used to doing. That's from near zero rates. Now, what does that mean, though, for the markets? That's always very hard to tell in advance. Yes, what they're going to raise is what they call their federal fund rate. And you can think of that as uh, the equivalent to the Australian cash rate. They, they keep it in a range and they will move that and move it gradually. What does it mean for markets? Well, that depends on what markets decide it means. Um, the, the, the rate rise itself should mean nothing. I, I suppose what uh, markets are most concerned about is what the Fed says along with the rate rise. And what markets are looking for is, is what they call a dovish tightening. That is, we have raised rates. We will be raising rates further over 2016 and 2017, but we will be doing so at only a very moderate pace. If markets get that message, then, um, then the market reaction should be very small. But if they get any hint, for example, that the Fed's likely to be a bit more aggressive, then, uh, then you can see a sell-off, in, uh, certainly in the US, so in Australia. But of course, it means uh, the end of uh, so much free money for uh, various funds, doesn't it? Well, the money will no longer be free, but it won't be very expensive either. So, um, the, you know, the, the, the one thing that you can be absolutely sure of is that, um, is that interest rates will remain low by historical standards literally for years yet. You see this uh, tracking down over how many years then? that rates will remain low? Well, the, you have to define low. And low, that isn't what um, it used to mean, of course. I mean, the prior to the Great Recession, you might have thought of a federal funds rate of, of six. And now the expectation is the federal funds rate will remain below three uh, for for several years uh, and possibly settling somewhere between three and four as a long-term uh, equilibrium. Um, so, you know, I mean, in, in the future, for as far as the eye can see, interest rates will remain low by historical standards. And so that would actually settle the markets, wouldn't it? Because they would have that certainty. Well, markets are already um, factoring in uh, perennially low interest rates. So um, the uh, if if that's the message they get, then that then they may breathe a sigh of relief, but uh, but there won't be any major reaction. If on the other hand the Fed um, does seem for whatever reason to be somewhat more aggressive, and I can't I can't think of a reason why they would do that, but um, if they are, then um, then markets will react negatively. If the Fed sends a very dovish message, then markets will react positively. The IMF, of course, had asked the Fed to hold off on interest rate rises, uh, warning about the develop the impact that this would have on developing markets. So, where do you see that tracking? I, I suppose the the Federal Reserve. Uh, would would think well, you know, our number one 
um, commitment is to managing the U.S. domestic economy. So these international considerations, uh, yes, they're there, but they're there in the background. And, and you know, nobody can be certain anyway that, um, you know, the rise in U.S. interest rates will have major ramifications for emerging markets. Um, the I think the Fed's attitude won't be expressed this way, but the Fed's attitude will be, look, we, we'll look after our job and you, the IMF, you look after yours. I don't think, you know, the, the, the Federal Reserve is not going to be swayed by, by that, uh, um, those considerations. They probably wouldn't even be swayed by an increase in financial market volatility. And the reason why I say that is because that's pro- an increase in volatility was probably what persuaded them not to raise rates in September. And, of course, the reaction to the non-move in September was itself a further increase in volatility. Rather um, paradoxically, there, there seemed to be too many people out there on the day, not so much in the weeks afterwards, but on the day, there seemed to be too many people who thought, well, if the Fed hasn't moved, things must be worse than I thought, <laughs> which was not the reaction they were looking for. Now, in- interestingly enough, though, uh, this, this uh, will have an impact on the Australian dollar, won't it? Because, uh, in a sense, the Fed will be doing the heavy lifting for the RBA. Well, once again, you can never be sure. The... Um the, the main effect on the Australian dollar should be that the interest rate differential between the US and Australia has changed. It's narrowed. And all other things being equal, that should weaken the Australian dollar. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, bear in mind, we've known about this for some time. It should be already factored in. So I suppose um, for more likely than not, I get the guess that the US dollar may strengthen on the day and therefore the, the Australian dollar may weaken. But as I said, if markets are rational, that should already be factored in. And so if that's factored in, you wouldn't see any long downward impact on the Australian dollar. It would uh, head back to where it is. And, and th- th- that's correct, unless the um, the US dollar strengthens. And we're not just talking on the day here. We're talking, you know, in the weeks and months ahead. Um, now, the US dollar has, of course, been quite strong recently anyway. And that's the main reason why the Australian dollar has come down. And we're probably still a little bit above fair value, but... Um, you know, if we're 72 cents right now, fair value might be around about 68 cents. So my, my suspicion is more likely uh, a bit more downward pressure on the Australian dollar, but we've seen most of the devaluation of the Australian dollar story. I mean, we were ten at one stage and now we're in the low 70s. We're a lot, lot closer to the right answer now than we were then. And uh, simply, it's simply that the market would have already priced in the Fed raising interest rates because it's been flagged as a dead set certainty, hasn't it? That, that's right. You'd have to be a pygmy somewhere in Africa not to have, you know, if you're surprised. Tell me, uh, what about the euro? I mean, that's that's a fascinating story itself. I mean, uh, the market's been reacting quite, quite strongly to uh, Draghi's response to uh, what's been happening over there. I mean, how do you see uh, the Fed's actions impacting on the euro? Uh, the, well, it should be fairly fairly neutral. I mean, uh, the the effect of the effect of the Fed on the euro should be very similar to the effect of the Fed on the Australian dollar, um, and that is, it really depends on on what happens to the U.S. dollar as a result of what um, as a result of what the Fed does. So, um, they, I, I suppose. So, I suppose what I'm saying is, well, unless it's already fully priced in, whatever the Fed does may cause a slight weakening of the euro. And of course, the uh, Chinese one, which has just been put into the IMF's uh, special drawing rights basket. I mean, what impact do you see happening there? I haven't thought much about that. Um, I suppose, if anything, um, 
uh, some slight weakening there. And let me just correct you there. It's not in the special drawing rights basket. It will be put into the special drawing rights basket, I think, sometime next year. Yeah, yeah. And so where do you see that tracking in that case? Well, it's um, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, I, I suppose that the, that currency will be, shall we say, uh, more routinely used in trade once it's in the SDR. And so, if anything, that would, you know, I mean, it's a, it's, if you if you had a transactions model, if you like, that would increase the demand for for renminbi's or, or yuan, and uh, and therefore would, if anything, I suppose, tend to uh, it would tend to strengthen. Um, now. Whether or not the Chinese authorities would then act to offset that, um, because it, they made it clear in August. Uh, well, see, the issue is, I guess, that the one is is tied to the U.S. dollar. So when the U.S. dollar strengthens, if you don't do anything, then the one goes up against other currencies. They may wish to uh, weaken or break that link. Chances are, though, that once it's in the SDR, the uh, one will become much more volatile, wouldn't it? I wouldn't have thought so. The uh, I suppose that you know right now it is it is kind of pegged. It has a daily trading range, but it is kind of pegged to the U.S. dollar. I suppose once it's in the SDR, the question will become whether or not they keep that peg. If they don't, then you then you're probably correct. It would be would become more volatile. Well, uh, so it'll be interesting times ahead to see the uh, impact on the uh, the Fed on the global markets. We yeah, watching with yeah. bated breath. Yeah, yeah, but then, let's face it, we will then fall into the uh, fall, fall into the Christmas pause, should we say? Um, but um, it's going to be interesting times from the um, should we say from the sixteenth through to Christmas. Well, Chris Caton, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. So, what do you think, Leon? You know, the, what what effect is this going to have apart from reducing the value of the Australian dollar? Well, it's going to mean uh, no more cheap money around. Uh, but uh, obviously, the U.S. market is quite uh, has been priced that in, and uh, uh, that's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, well, actually, the the even the market here, and and certainly the um, the Australian dollar rate has already been factored in. That's right. That's right. So anyway, let's let's uh, let's see how that pans out. But anyway, to global news, and of course, uh, as we just discussed um, with Chris Caton, the U.S. Federal Reserve has, uh, as, as expected, raised interest rates for the first time in a decade, and it actually means, Gary, this is the end of a global financial crisis. Yeah, the crisis is over and uh, now we're in repair, so we hope, because still a lot of work to do. That's right. But uh, anyway, the benchmark federal funds rate has been raised 0.25 percentage points to 0.5%. That's up from its previous target of 0 to 0.25%. The vote was unanimous. The Fed single signaled that they'll be doing some gradual increases, and the focus is on gradual, and they'll be monitoring inflation very closely, which inflation rate over in the US is below their target. Yeah, it currently is quite low, isn't it? So won't change much. To another piece of news in China, and all the big researchers at China Central Bank say they expect economic growth to come in at 6.8% next year, with consumer inflation accelerating and real estate sales rebounding. And People's Bank of China economists also cut their 2015 growth trend to 6.9. That's down from a 7-point projection, uh, 7% projection in June. And the report came hours after a government-backed research institution released a forecast saying growth will slow to 6 6.6 to 6.8% next year. So all the official numbers coming out of China are saying we're slowing down. Yeah, we're well under 7 and, and it could go lower. But they've got some incentives for lower paid workers and people like that. So you may see a bit better uplift in spending. 
It's going to be like that for quite some time, I'd imagine. I saw someone some projection saying it's going to be like that till at least 2018. Now, the price of iron ore has struck a 10-year low. It's fallen to $37 a ton. That's uh, that's quite significant. Now, this is it's uh, it's been having consecutive red sessions and and it's been an 18-month bear market. And the losing run has barely stopped for nine weeks, with just four positive trading days in the last 45. Meanwhile, its ninth losing week represents the worst such run since the depths of the financial crisis in 2008. And it means, of course, that a lot of the junior miners are going to stand up to shut down. That's right. And Rio Tinto boss uh, Sam Walsh was on Bloomberg giving an interview and he said a lot of the miners are just hanging out by the fingernails. Yeah, even Atlas, uh, yeah, which is moderately large. And there's also, you'd have to be a question over Gina Reinhardt's Roy Hill project That's right, as well. that's right. So we, we just let's just watch that space. Now, um, US oil prices might fall into the 20s if uh, tanks used to store crude start to fill up before producers sufficiently curb output. That's according to Citigroup. Uh, prices need to fall low enough to force some production to be halted if supplies overwhelm storage capacity. And and uh, Citigroup is saying that scenario looks to be tested in the first half of next year. And that would require West Texas immediate crude uh, to slump to the high 20s. That's from about $37 now. Brent, the global market, would need to decline to about $30. That's going to be quite significant for the all global market. And the global market's going to be reacting to that quite strongly. That's right. One of the wild cards in there is that the Middle East could well raise production simply to keep their cash flow going. That's right. And in their battle with uh, the US shale oil producers. Exactly. Now the government's mid-year fiscal outlook has a government has a budget deficit blowing out to 37.4 billion. That's up from 35.1 billion forecast in the May budget, with a falling iron ore price and lower economic growth. It forecasts deficits of 23.8 billion worse over three years from 2016 than first estimated in the budget. It also forecasts four years of deficits, totaling 108 billion, with a deficit in 2018-19 coming out at 14.2 billion. That's twice as big a proportion of GDP as forecast in May, with the iron ore forecast cut to 30. $39 a tonne as opposed to $48 a tonne. In budget time, revenues coming into government coffers have been slashed to $33.8 billion over four years. Economic growth has been cut by 0.25 percentage points to 2.5% in 2015-16 and 0.5 percentage points to 2.75% in 2016-17. The government, meanwhile, has committed spending on its $1.1 billion innovation package, $909 million to resettle an extra 12,000 Syrian refugees, $1.1 billion in extra roads funding, and $621 million for new pharmaceutical subsidies. The statement says to offset that, there are plans to target people who incorrectly claim welfare payments, saving $704 million over three years to 2018-19. It plans to save $472 million from aged care funding, another $441 million from changes that will reduce childcare subsidies on families with more than $250,000 a year. And the government's also looking at savings of $639 million from changes of pathology and diagnostic images and $595 million from reduced funding to health workforce programs. So that's just over, what, two, two billion bucks, 2.5 billion. That's about it in savings. The honeymoon's over for, for everybody and a lot is going to depend upon the care with which the Turnbull government sells the package because we're going to have to do something and a lot of people are going to get sort of bruised. There's warnings from doctors that uh, people are going to get very sick and cancer rates are going to go up as a result. Yeah, I think that might be frightening, you know, aimed to frighten, but it's just a question of being very careful, but they've got to achieve the economies. Now, uh, the latest Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index uh, 
shows that the outlook for the Australian economy in 2016 has deteriorated. The index, which indicates the likely pace of economic activity three to nine months in the future, fell to 0.08 percentage points in November, signalling weak to economic activity in the coming months, weak to moderate economic activity in the coming months. At the same time, consumers have ended 2015 much merrier than last year. Despite some consolidation last year, the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Sentiment Index slipped 0.8% for the week to December 13, but confidence remains well above levels seen last Christmas. That's up 4.7% compared to this time in 2014, and still above its long-run average. Yeah, which is interesting because I think it proves that the Australian public, if you talk to them sensibly, will wear all this and they'll understand why. I mean, Morrison's talking about a long, grinding road back to uh, prosperity. Okay, it hasn't caused any shocks. That's right, and there's some interesting corporate news. First to Clive Palmer's troubled nickel refinery. Queensland Premier Anastasia Palachuk says it would have set an alarming precedent for her government to agree to act as a guarantor for Clive Palmer's nickel refinery. Curtis Pitt, her treasurer, sent a letter to Queensland Nickel Managing Director and Palmer's Mr Palmer's nephew, Clive Mensick, last Friday, rejecting a request for the state government to act as a guarantor for a $35 million bank overdraft. And Palachuk said the company had failed to bribe full and frank information during negotiations with the treasurer. I tell you what, though, uh, old Clive's got plenty of cheek. That's right. That's right. Uh, well, yeah. Again, it, it's it's just typical, isn't it, that you got these businesses, business leaders who attack governments for being too big, interfering in business. As soon as something goes wrong, they come to the government asking for a handout. It's very Australian. He wanted a thirty-five million dollar <laughs> sack that he wanted filled. Now, Suncor, the insurer, has warned of a four billion dollar record run of natural disasters, has conspired with the weaker Australian dollar to have a significant impact on the group's general insurance margin for the first six months of the financial year, and chief. Executive Michael Cameron says Suncor's have tended to offset the increased volumes and cost of claims with new initiatives, but the underlying insurance trading ratio is expected to be around 10% for the half year. It was 12%, 12.8% for the same period last year. Mr. Cameron said the insurance trading ratio had also been hit by a $75 million increase in natural hazards, higher than anticipated large loss experience in commercial insurance, and increasing compulsory third-party claims in New South Wales, and lower investment yields. And that's a bit of a worry. Now, GrainCore is planning to expand its footprint into Canada. It's creating a joint venture with a subsidiary of a Japanese agricultural cooperative, Zenno, that will operate grain receival sites across Alberta and Saskatchewan. And the Australian Grain Handling Company says it would hold a 50% stake in the venture, which will be based in Calgary. It will contribute about 30 million Canadian dollars, that's about 30.3 million Aussie, to the business over the next two years. On top of the uh, 60 million Canadian dollar, the venture plans to source from financial institutions. And it will leverage GrainCore's existing market marketing office in Calgary and its Canadian malting company, as well as Zenno's experience in customer relationships and exporting agricultural commodities from North America to Japan and other Asian countries. So that's a good deal, I think. It's a very good deal and very interesting in the partnership with Japan. That's right. And I think it's very significant for GrainCorp because it means they're diversifying. It means they're less dependent on the weather conditions here. Very much. And there's a quality element in there as well because the Japanese are, you know, fiendish about quality and food particularly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, building products company CSR is moving into home batteries. It's formed an alliance with Tesla Energy and it's selling Powerwall systems to Australian households. Now, CSR Bradford will have an inverted battery. It's a move that will broaden CSR product range while giving access to what's 
likely to be a fast-growing market. The deal follows last week's announcement on an agreement between Tesla and Origin Energy that would see the power company selling Powerwall systems as part of a package that comes with a battery and inverter and rooftop solar panels. And I think many more deals are likely to be announced because Tesla is planning to expand its sales into Australia because Tesla sees Australia as a prime market for Powerwall because it has a high penetration of rooftop solar households and they would save more energy on when combined with a battery. Yep, and it's, it's going to have some effect on the uh, traditional uh, generation companies as well. It's interesting that Origin has stepped into this area. That's right, that's right. It's very, very smart. Very smart of Origin to do that, I think. Oh, yeah, it's a very smart company. They're assuming this is going to affect our margins, this is going to affect our business, so they're moving ahead of it, and they're well ahead of the other utilities. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you're seeing the effect of renewables in Adelaide and That's South right. Australia. That's right. Now, Qantas is, is expecting a big boost in underlying profits for the first half of the year. Amazing what cheap oil does, Gary. Um, <laughs> it's forecast an underlying profit for the first six months of financial year of up to $925 million. That's more than double the $367 million result for the same period last year. The company attributes it to uh, lower fuel prices secured through its hedging arrangements and of course it's a two billion dollar transformation program yeah there's nothing like cheaper fuel and retaining the fuel levy final piece of news gary is australia's third richest man james packer has been talking to private equity about privatizing some of crown resorts casino assets and crown shares which have fallen 33 percent since february rose sharply on the speculation of talks in the media and yesterday they closed at $11.77 that's the biggest gain since march 2009 now now, Packer, who owns 53% of the $8 billion company, has been in talks with US private equity giant TPG Capital Management and Crown's one-third stake in Melco Crown Entertainment, which operates City of Dreams and other properties in Macau, which is the world's biggest gambling hub, has been hit hard by Chinese government curbs on illicit money flows and has cracked down on corruption, which has deterred the number of well-heeled VIP gamblers. So that's affected the Crown share price. So in a way, this is a, bit, this is a good bit of risk management on James Packer's part, I think. Yes, very much. Yeah, and it's changing the company that he inherited from his late father. Yeah, where are newspapers in that? No, no, nowhere to be found. <laughs> All gone. And that's it for this week, Gary. And in fact, uh, that's it for the year. We'll be back in February next year. We're yep. looking forward to talking to you then. And we're going to have a terrific interview then with a guy called Bruce Tolgan from Rainmaker Thinking in America. He's going to be talking to us all about Generation Z. That's the generation born uh, in the late, more recently and coming into the workforce. And uh, that's going to be a fascinating interview. And they're quite different very very different so that's it and thank you very much for being with us all year we're looking forward to presenting you talking business next year it's going to be terrific again in the meantime you can keep in touch with us on twitter at talking or on facebook stay safe and wishing you all a terrific christmas